Hello, I'm Charles Bowman, and welcome to this, our latest episode of Off the Agenda. And today, we're at the Law Society, a London-based institution that has represented and governed solicitors in England and Wales since 1825. And I'm delighted to be joined by the current president of the Law Society, I, Stephanie Boyce, who has had an extraordinary and impressive career in both the law and legal services. She started that career in private practice before navigating to the Bar Council as a solicitor. She's a fellow of the Chartered Governance Institute, a commissioner at the National Preparedness Commission, a trustee at LawWorks, a member of the Thomson Reuters Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law Advisory Board, and a member of the HM Treasury Bays and the City of London Corporation's Socio-Economic Task Force. She's chair of the Independent Education Appeal Panel at Buckingham County Council, honorary professor of the Dixon Pool School of Law, King's College London. And in 2021 and 2022, featured on the power list 100 most influential people in the UK in politics, law and religion. And this year in 2022, she was the winner of the Inspirational Role Model Award at the Burberry British Diversity Awards. But perhaps most significantly, she made history when in 2021 she became the 177th president of the Law Society, making her the first black and the first person of colour to be appointed to this role. And it is my great, great pleasure to welcome I, Stephanie Boyce, to Off the Agenda. I, Stephanie, uh, welcome. And can I say it's a delight to meet you today. Welcome to Off the Agenda and thank you so much for being our guest today. I'm going to start by taking you all the way back. Uh, to the beginning, if I may. Your mother was born on the island of St. Vincent um, and at the age of 15 in 1967 came across to the UK. Your father indeed had come across from Barbados three years earlier. You were born in Aylesbury and your mother raised you as a single parent at that moment in time. What were those early memories, those early childhood experiences like? Growing up in your community, what what were the challenges and opportunities that presented themselves at that time? Well, can I say firstly, uh, thank you very much for uh, having me, inviting me to be a guest. But thinking back to my childhood um, and just from some of my earliest recollection, growing up in uh, a single parent household because uh, my parents had separated by the time I was four years old, um, was that you know it was a communal meeting place, if you like, on a Sunday where family, friends would gather over uh, good food. Um, and I just remember the conversations that flowed over the, 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 the table in terms of what was going on around the world, uh, what was going on in our own communities. Um, and some of those injustices uh, that people spoke about that was happening domestically and globally, but also just that reminiscing for home, uh, and home being, uh, uh, for the elders in the community, the Caribbean, um, and the life that they had been left behind, uh, the life they had left behind, but the stories that they told. Um, and I just remember, because I grew up in an era where children were seen, uh, but not heard, um, and just, you know, listening behind the door um, uh, in the corner somewhere, just listening to the richness of those stories. Um, 
But, but definitely remembering that as a child growing up in a single parent household um, of sort of those economic, those financial challenges uh, that a single parent household would bring. Um, but just remembering that there was still that richness of conversation and just the, the love and, and supportiveness of the community. Fantastic. And to reference, referencing family, uh, you have a younger brother, um, uh, Emerson Boyce, who is a professional footballer, was a professional footballer, and, and now coaches the Barbados national women's team. Um, and I'm keen to understand the nature of the relationship you had uh, as a child growing up, growing up um, with siblings and your younger brother, and the extent to which you provided a sense of influence uh, in his own career path. Absolutely. So yes, Emerson is, is uh, one of uh, two younger brothers that I have, um, and we share the same father. Um, so we didn't live in the same household growing up, but certainly when I saw him at the weekends and, uh, uh, and on holidays, um, and there's seven years between he and I. Um, so, and, and he'd always, you know, from a young age, had a talent for initially cricket, uh, and then uh, switch to football. Um, but of course, Emerson went away at quite a young age to football academy, football school. Um, but later in life, when we'd reconnect after I came back from uh, America, um, just and watching his career as it progressed, um, and always being on hand to give uh, that older sister advice um, as to how he could navigate the choppy waters, if you like, of football. Fantastic. In your own teens, you relocated to the US, not unlike one of uh, our earlier guests, Jackie Wright, uh, and you lived there for six years before returning to the UK to study law. And I'm keen to understand the nature of the difference between the educational system that you experienced in the US to that you previously experienced within the, uh, the UK. And also, what were the motivations that took you towards studying law? I think, as I've said previously, in as much that, you know, the US being taken from rural Buckinghamshire, as it was at that time, to uh, initially an American uh, military base, um, to, uh, uh, you know, and being engrossed in that society, that culture, um, which was all new to me, but also seeing the difference in treatment uh, through rich and poor and those who uh, had a different a uh, uh, different color of their skin. I was taken back by some of those challenges, uh, some of those obstacles, absolutely overwhelmed by it. And I think, you know, at times that's what absolutely drove me from my experience in high school um, to the uh, taking the school bus in, you know, the, the, you know uh, kids who lived in the poorer neighborhoods, including myself, were bussed in um, into school where the other kids you know, would drive in because they lived a lot closer, um, but interestingly would drive in um, and, you know, could turn up when school was about to start as opposed to being kept waiting outside for an hour or so. But I think it was those different experiences that I saw um, just absolutely drove me to wanting to make a difference um, and felt that law was and something that I'd wanted to do from such a young age that law was a tool, an instrument, to be able to affect that change and make that difference. 
That's a great, great answer. And of course, you came back, you gained an LLB from London Guildhall University in 1999, and then the LLPC from the College of Law in Guildford, and were admitted uh, as a solicitor in 2002. Um, and I quite keen to understand the nature of your your experience, that journey through to that professional qualifications, and again, some of the challenges, impediments, opportunities that, that presented themselves throughout that journey. Mm. Well, as you said, having spent six years uh, in America and graduated from American high school, um, my ambition was always to return to uh, this jurisdiction, England and Wales, to study law. Um, but I came, came up against my first obstacle was that my American high school diploma was not recognized here at that time. So I had to uh, take a, a conversion course, if you like, uh, doing part-time over two years, the higher um, uh, qualification route into education that allowed me to then go on to university uh, part-time initially um, when I entered London Guildhall in 1999. And then subsequently going on to do the legal practice course, as you said. Um, and then, you know, uh, the training contract again was, you know, another hurdle. Uh, my father happened to be in the right place, perhaps at the right time. Um, and, you know, by virtue of the fact that somebody else had dropped out and wasn't able to take that contract, I was uh, went along and had an interview, and I was successfully uh, awarded the training contract. But again, you know, once I finished training, um, conveyancing was the boom of the day. I wanted to be a litigator, so I left uh, uh, where I had trained with no job to go to. So having qualified as a solicitor, um, a mountain of debt. Uh, but no job to practice uh, as a solicitor with. Um, so I embarked on doing a few gardens and, and, and other jobs, you know, to pass the time until I got my first, first post-qualification job. Um, but then again, having done that for, uh, um, you know, within two years, I've been made redundant twice in as many years. Um, and then I decided I wanted to come into the City of London to practice. Uh, I just remember my recruitment agent telling me that because I hadn't trained in the city, I hadn't worked in the city, practiced in the city, you know, it was unlikely that I'd get into the city and that my salary expectation was unrealistic. I didn't listen to her. I got myself a different agent, one who shared uh, my dreams and subsequently landed my first job in the city with the general counsel of the bar in 2004. And then that has been uh, my, uh, that started off my in-house uh, uh, career um, and I've gone on to work for a number of um, organisations. But I joined uh, Law Society Council in 2013 uh, to represent the Women Lawyers Division. Um, and within two years of being on council, um, I put myself forward for the first time as a DVP candidate. Uh, and four attempts later, uh, four attempts later, I was successfully elected as Deputy Vice President in 2019. Fantastic. And I'm going to come on to that in just a second. And that's an extraordinary story. Um, and, and within all the mix of uh, uh, this, the, this career path, you are a director yourself of your own company, uh, Stephanie Boyce Consulting Limited. And that is a consultancy advises on not-for-profit management and governance more, more widely. Uh, again, what types of activity uh, and organisations do you uh, uh, work with um, in, in that context? So, um, so it's fair to say that the company's been dormant since I took up my post as 
Deputy Vice President in 2019. Uh, but before that, I'd worked with uh, a number of professional bodies, membership bodies, um, uh, 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 you know, uh, a number of uh, religious organisations as well. Um, but quite rightly in governance, uh, which I hold a master's uh, in, um, but going into organisations, doing their governance reviews, change management. Um, and uh, so that has fueled my appetite to then go on to uh, become uh, a fellow uh, of the governance, the Chartered Governance Institute. Um, but a, a real passion for governance. But as I say, um, having not worked in uh, the consultancy from since 2019, because I've absolutely devoted myself uh, to becoming, uh, being Deputy Vice President and then Vice President um, and, and President uh, full-time, because I, you know, a remarkable opportunity. And it's an incredible achievement. So as you say, in 2019, Deputy Vice President, the Society's Vice President in 2020, and then its President in March 2021. And can you tell us a little bit more about the role and responsibilities of being the president of the Law Society and reflecting back, were there sort of key moments uh, before that uh, that helped you to this particular point? Well, absolutely, in as much that, as I say, four attempts that it took me to get here. Um, and I don't view those previous attempts as, you know, um, I didn't succeed in those previous attempts, but for me, they weren't failures. I don't like the word failure, but for me, it has a negative connotation to it. They were three attempts to try again um, and to perfect, to hone um, my offering. Um, and as I say, to try it again. And, and you know, uh, after four attempts, I was successfully elected. And, and I'm quite open about the fact that, you know, if, it, if I needed to go a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, I would have kept going. Such was my belief and determination um, in getting to this position. Um, and as I say, it's an absolute privilege, a remarkable opportunity to be here, to serve my profession as president. Um, and it, it's a remarkable platform to achieve, uh, achieve change, to make a difference. And can you take us through a typical day as the president of the Law Society? Typical. Is there such a thing? I'm not sure there is, <laughs> especially over the last year or so. Um, you know, my tenure has, uh, has, you know, presided over a number of world crises, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what the war in Ukraine, uh, Afghanistan, the situation in Afghanistan, the pandemic. Um, but all equally, you know, the challenges that the legal profession faces in terms of becoming a more equitable um, profession um, and, you know, um, and the role that the president plays as the president of the Law Society is in terms of being an ambassador for the profession, um, but being able to influence in terms of some of the conversations with government from uh, uh, other stakeholders, but to galvanize our profession as we did, the Law Society did, around uh, when it was proposed that the Solicitors Indemnity Fund, which of course is the, the insurance, if you like, uh, for solicitors, um, and for members of the public would close. The way we were able to galvanise the profession um, behind our, our skin and get uh, the Solicitors Regulation Authority to um, not close the fund, but to extend it for a further year. Uh, indeed. And you you recently, in terms of that advocacy and influence, you uh, recently hit out at the MOJ, the Ministry of uh, Justice, uh, after the new figures showed 
that there are still more than 58,000 uh, Crown Court cases waiting to be uh, heard. And in many cases, the victims uh, looking and waiting long years to see justice being uh, done. What, what more um, needs to be done? What's the nature of the influence that you provided uh, to government to, to help and support um, and make sure that this doesn't continue? Mm. Well, absolutely. The backlog in the court system is of deep concern to the law society. When we talk, we talk so much about ability to access justice. And when we have uh, a backlog, there is delay in the system for the defendant, for witnesses, for victims who are, uh, ho who are having to wait to for their opportunity for their day in court, either to clear their name or to get the justice they deserve. And the backlog, so the government's ambition to get that backlog down to 53,000 uh, by 2024, um, we feel that there needs to be greater investment, greater ambition to get that backlog down far further than the, the 53,000 proposed. And that will take significant investment from the government, um, it, and not only just in the justice system, but in terms of the infrastructure around the court system, uh, in terms of buildings, in terms of judges, uh, practitioners who practice within the court system to enable uh, the justice system to continue to thrive. Um, and you promoted within all of that the criticality and importance of uh, the rule of law, explaining that it is one of our country's strongest assets um, and a, indeed a competitive advantage, uh, commercially and otherwise, uh, for uh, the UK. Um, but respecting the fact that we need to invest in it, as you uh, as as you uh, put it, can you talk us a little bit a little bit more about the nature of that investment, what it looks like, what it feels like on the ground to ensure that we retain that jewel in the crown, our rule of law? Well, absolutely. The rule of law is fundamental. It's one of the pillars of our democracy. You know, our justice system is you know, revered around the world. People come here, clients, individuals come here, organisations come here to litigate. But our criminal justice system and parts of our civil justice system is in crisis. And that means that the government must invest. And if, if for instance, I take the criminal justice system, there has been no real significant increase in fees to defence practitioners in almost 25 years. I know of no other profession where people have worked for, for that long with no pay increase. And it's not just the fees, it's the whole system. Uh, the investment is needed in the whole system, the infrastructure of that. So as I said previously about the judges, the people who work in the system, court buildings, where we've heard stories about uh, the infrastructure of the court buildings, the court estates, um, leaking roofs and, and, and courts not being operational because the heat heating isn't working. But we're also seeing an aging uh, profession from uh, the defence practitioner perspective. You know, a quarter of the profession is aged um, 35 and under. Um, the average age for a defence practitioner is some uh, about 50 years of age. Um, but not only that, some parts of the country where you will struggle to get uh, um, a legal practitioner to represent you in court. And that is a real concern 
for us as the Law Society, but indeed should be a real concern for us as a nation, as a country. Uh, and in the context of that shortage of judges and prosecutors, as you say, the criticality of opening up positions and career, career paths for the younger gen generations, how can we help and facilitate that happening in today's day? So we have seen, what we've seen of late is in the last spending review, uh, the government has uh, set out that it's, it's prepared to invest in uh, training contracts to get uh, individuals going into the criminal justice system. But what we're clear is, is that the government must invest in the entire system. There is no point investing in training contracts to train people to come into a system that may no longer be there or worthy of its name. So uh, Sir Christopher Bellamy uh, conducted an independent review of the criminal legal aid system and called for a bare minimum of 15% increase in fees to defence practitioners. Um, and of course, there are some parts where we have seen the government pledge that 15% and it's welcome. But what that means for solicitors is not the bare minimum 15%, but overall 9%. Um, so we are continuing to work with government to campaign to ensure that solicitors get that bare minimum recommendation of 15% to ensure the viability, the sustainability of the justice of our justice system, our criminal justice system. And that's critical, obviously, in terms of retaining that position as being having that strong reputation. I felt it too. I should should have said as a serving well, serving sheriff in 2015-16 and a Lord Mayor of the City of London in in 1718. The real criticality of and the asset that we possess in terms of our rule of law. Absolutely. And as I say, you know, uh, you know, our judges, our courts are revered around the world for the fairness of their judgments, the independence of, you know, their decisions and so forth. Um, we are respected as a nation, you know, one of our greatest exports um, uh, around the world. But we must ensure that we have a justice system, as I say, worthy of its name, and that people will still want to come here uh, and litigate if you like. Indeed, invested in and attracted for the younger generation. Can I, you yourself, you've cemented yourself in our history with your uh, achievement, becoming the first black and the first person of colour as president of this extraordinary institution, um, the Law Society of England and, and Wales. Keen to understand how driven you are to continue advancing that representation in the law and ensuring that indeed that next generation that we referred to are more reflective of the communities that this organisation and others serve. Absolutely. It is incumbent upon us all to leave the profession, you know, in a better state than we found it for the next generation to come. And we must ensure that, uh, you know, um, through a number of programmes uh, and initiatives, uh, for instance, the diversity access scheme that the Law Society supports over the last 10 years, we have uh, funded over 200 places for individuals who come from uh, a less disadvantaged background to be able to pursue a career in law, whereas perhaps for a number of reasons, they may not have otherwise been able to do so. So that is a period of mentorship, work experience, and full funding for the legal practice course, or indeed now the solicitor's qualifying exam. 
uh, we also run the Social Mobility Ambassadors Programme, uh, where people will speak of uh, those who've gone on to qualify as a solicitor will go into schools, uh, colleges, and so forth, and workplaces, and speak about their journey into the law. So there are a number of schemes going on to diversify the profession, but I have made it my mission, my intention, to leave this profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. And I'm clear that it must be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. Um, this is a remarkable profession, a remarkable opportunity to serve as president. Um, and I'm absolutely proud of the way that we have galvanized ourselves as a profession, the momentum behind discussing uh, uh, DI and um, and some of the initiatives that we have seen come out of this. Um, but we must continue because whilst much has been done, there is so much more to do. Stephanie, that is a wonderful answer, wonderful answer. And it actually brings me probably to, or to my final question. And it's one that I ask all, all our guests on off, off the agenda, uh, reflecting that we live in complex, challenging and, and difficult times where perhaps hope and aspiration are really needed in, t in today's day. Um, and I was keen to ask, what are the lines of support and encouragement and advice that you would give to that younger generation as they start out in their own career path? Mm. Well, I, I've got a number of advice that I, that I would give. Um, it is incumbent upon us uh, to ensure that we leave the profession in better shape than we found it for the next generation. So the advice that I would give is to never give up. Um, you know, determination, resilience, perseverance, perhaps is how I would describe my journey to becoming president of the Law Society. But equally, we need to run our own race, write our own story. You know, the cemeteries are filled with people whose dreams died with them. You owe it to yourself, you owe it to the world to never give up, to birth that dream if you have it, otherwise you'll watch someone else doing it. But ultimately, I absolutely believe that every door is open if you push. You persevere until something happens. I have made it my mission to leave this profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. And I'm absolutely clear that it must be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. And I have been amazed and emboldened by the way we as a profession have uh, galvanized ourselves uh, in making a difference to keeping the conversation going but equally aware that whilst much has been done, there is a lot more to do. I certainly, what a wonderful way to end. Thank you so much. Never give up, be determined, show resilience, demonstrate that perseverance, and make sure that you narrate, write, and coordinate your own story. What a wonderful way to finish. Thank you so, so much for joining us on Off The Agenda today for being our guest uh, this afternoon. We wish you all the very best of luck for the coming final months as president of this extraordinary institution. And we wish you all the very best of luck ahead. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Well, it's been a real honor and privilege to speak today with I, Stephanie Boyce, to hear her inspiring story and stories. Thank you, Stephanie, and thank you all for listening. Well, that's all from me other than to say, as always, stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions, and more inspirational guests. Thank you, and bye for now.